Examine the 1999 Frank Oz-directed comedy Bowfinger, one minute of screen time per episode. Hi, everybody. My name is Dean O'Carroll, and I am not normally a Movies by Minute host. I am a uh, playwright by trade. I am the author of uh, plays that might be coming soon to a high school or middle school drama club stage. Plays like Sally Cotter and the Censored Stone, Back to the 80s, or Choose Your Heist, uh, but I was fortunate enough to get to host uh, one week of Silverado Minute last season, and so I, uh, uh, I'm getting to pitch in for just the one episode this time, and I'm very happy to do so, because this is such a fun movie. I like this movie very much. Uh, I think it is uh, very funny. I think it's very clever. I think it's uh, some pretty sharp satire. I would stop short of saying that I love this movie. Um, I, uh, I love so many people who are involved in this. I, uh, I really enjoy it, as I said. Um, it's not my favorite work by anybody involved in this, uh, though I certainly think it is a, a worthy movie, and it is going to be a lot of fun listening to people talk about it this season. I saw this movie in theaters back in 1999. Um, my, uh, I recently asked my wife if uh, she remembered seeing it with me because we had just started dating that summer. Uh, and so I thought we would have seen it together. She has no memory of, of seeing it, so maybe I saw it with friends. But I saw it, and I, uh, I certainly enjoyed it. Um, and uh, it was interesting for me to see it because that was just before I myself moved out to uh, Los Angeles and moved uh, to, uh, uh, to the, uh, the greater Hollywood area to try to make it in, uh, in film or television. And did I? Well, would I be hosting an episode of this podcast if I was a successful Hollywood person? Uh, no, no. I, I had a great time uh, in L.A. For, for many reasons, and I really do, uh, do love the city. Um, and, uh, uh, but I did choose to leave it um, once it was clear that uh, probably uh, it was not a, uh, a career waiting for me. Uh, so I did not stick around L.A. And, uh, and turn into a Bobby Bowfinger type, and not turn into uh, someone who's just, you know, constantly convincing themselves that their big break is right around the corner. Um, and uh, though that is certainly a type that uh, you do encounter in Los Angeles. And it's, uh, it's kind of sad, um, but, uh, but also kind of funny in its way. And, you know, that is how this movie works. So the question is then, um, if you like this movie so much, Dean, why don't you love it? And I'm not entirely certain what it is about it that, uh, that keeps me from, uh, from fully 100% embracing it the way that I do uh, a, a lot of, uh, of other movies that I, I really love and cherish. I think it might be because all of the characters in this movie 
are stupid. I do not mind stupid characters. I think they can be hilarious. But I do think that I'd like to have at least one smart character in a movie to sort of anchor it for me to, to feel more connected to. Because if I'm just being told, ha-ha, laugh at these idiots, that leaves me feeling a little, I don't know, disconnected, I guess. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe if it had been a situation where, like, uh, Bobby Bowfinger was actually a guy with, with some talent, some brains, uh, and he sort of it never worked out for him in, in one way or another, but he's got this sort of, like, you know, group of friends and associates, and they're all kind of dumb, and he keeps sort of stringing them along and, and trying to, to make it work for them. The, the example that I think of is something like uh, the movie Dodgeball, which came out a few years after this movie. And, like, Vince Vaughn's character is kind of like that. You know, he's he runs this sort of, you know, down-and-out gym. He's kind of a lazy guy, but he's, you know, he's fairly smart, and he's got this, this group of friends that he, he loves and supports, and they're all kind of uh, dumb or, or short-sighted, uh, but he'll, uh, he'll do anything for them. So would that have worked better for this? I don't know, because if Bobby Bowfinger had a brain, would he ever have wanted to make the movie Chubby Rain in the first place? Uh, that seems unlikely. Um, and if I dig deep, I can think of movies where characters are all dumb that I love, like the Christopher Guest movies. Uh, those characters are all uh, all pretty empty-headed, and I, uh, I really enjoy all of those. So maybe that's not my problem with this movie. Uh, but like I said... Uh, that aside, this is so fun. And I'm not going to complain about a movie that I think is, you know, a, a B-plus movie because, hey, well, that's pretty darn good. Um, so I'm very happy to be talking about it uh, this, uh, uh, this minute. Um, so let's, uh, let's begin looking at uh, the way this minute starts. And it starts with the logo for the movie, for Bowfinger. And that feels like kind of an honor for me to get to, uh, uh, to begin with the, uh, the logo for the movie. It's an interesting title for this movie. Uh, it doesn't really tell you anything about the plot or the story, and uh, certainly there are great movies where the title is just the main character's name, um, and that works in a, uh, with a movie title like Jerry Maguire or Forrest Gump or something like that. Um, it doesn't work when it's sort of forced and you come up with a title like Lucky Number Slevin. You know, that's, <laughs> that's kind of ridiculous. Um, this one, I think, works because Bowfinger is an unusual name. I've never met a Bowfinger in real life. So uh, I think that it's, uh, it certainly is memorable and it's Googleable. I don't know if in 1999, when this movie came out, people were really thinking that that was uh, a necessary thing to be. But, uh, yeah, if you Google Bowfinger, you're only going to get this movie. You're not going to, uh, 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 you know, find like, you know, Bowfinger auto supplies uh, in your uh, in your local neighborhood. So I guess it is a, a pretty solid title. So the uh, the song that is playing is, of course, uh, the song There's Always One More Time, sung by Johnny Adams, who was a, uh, a soul singer who uh, who had a, a couple of hits and was very respected in uh, in his community, who sadly died about a year before this movie came out. So uh, this is a, 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 a posthumous listening to his music here. Um, and of course, that, uh, that song is also the basis for the theme for our podcast. So you just heard uh, our version of, uh, of that uh, playing us in. So, um, and here we are, we're panning through Bobby Bowfinger's house. Um, and uh, uh, one thing I noticed is that around his, I guess, dining room table, uh, he has director's chairs, you know, canvas folding chairs, uh, showing both his uh, obsession with, uh, with film and uh, the fact that he uh, probably doesn't have money for, uh, uh, for better quality chairs. 
Um, so then uh, the first voice that we hear, other than the song, is, of course, the outgoing message on, uh, on Bobby Bowfinger's answering machine. And then we get the voice of a woman from the phone company uh, threatening to uh, turn off his phone for, uh, for non-payment of his bill. Now, the voice that we hear um, is, uh, is a sort of a cliche, is sort of a, a stock character type, is sort of a stereotype of the, uh, the black woman who works uh, in a customer service type job, who uh, delivers her, uh, her uh, written speeches uh, for her, her job uh, kind of robotically and blandly. Um, so I wonder if a moment like this would exist in a movie today. Uh, obviously, you know, because we don't use answering machines anymore, it would be a, a different kind of a situation. We don't necessarily even use, uh, um, uh, landline phones anymore. Um, but, uh, would you use that sort of stock character type of, uh, of the, uh, the, the black woman working in customer service? Um, I don't think it's as egregious or offensive a stereotype as uh, like the uh, the cliche from the 80s and 90s of the uh, the Indian man working at 7-Eleven, um, but uh, it is still a stereotype. <laughs> and um, so I, I think we would at least think twice about uh, using something like this uh, today when you could uh, try to do something different or unique. This was 1999. This was early in an era of comedy that was largely about shock value was largely about being, you know, daring and outrageous. This is a year after There's Something About Mary came out. It's about two years after South Park premiered. And that really sort of had set the tone for comedy for the next decade or more of, uh, of that kind of like, can you believe we're doing this? We're so outrageous uh, type of, of comedy, um, which included a lot of, you know, let's embrace uh Stereotypes and uh, and so on and uh, and and mock them sort of, but also embrace them. And uh, because we're so outrageous, we're so wild and crazy that we can get away with this. Can you believe we're really doing this? Now, this movie is not. There's something about Mary. This movie is not American Pie. This movie is not South Park. I don't think that Steve Martin and Frank Oz would make a movie like that. But you can still see some elements of that comedy philosophy in this movie with things like the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the Mexican film crew, or certainly the, uh, the big sequence in the finale with the, uh, the Taiwanese action movie, uh, where they feel very comfortable, um, uh, playing on some, uh, some racial cliches and stereotypes. And, um, it is not my place to say what people of any given racial or ethnic group that I do not belong to should or should not be offended by, um, whether or not I'm offended by it, I probably am, but like I said, it's not my job to tell other people what they should or, or shouldn't be offended by. But purely as a person who likes and appreciates comedy, I find this kind of thing a little bit lazy uh, in the sense that when you could be giving your audience something new to think about, you could be putting a new idea in their head. Instead, you're just bringing up a cliche or a stereotype that they already have in their own mind, something that the, they already are, are holding on to. Um, and uh, and that just strikes me as um, a little bit uh, cheap and lazy. Um, so that's a lot to, uh, to put onto one brief moment of a customer service call or a, a billing, a collections agency uh, call in a movie. So I, I'm probably reading more into that uh, than I should. Oh, and by the way, I myself, as a comedy writer, 
I write parodies of pop culture franchises, so I uh, I definitely work on things that people are already familiar with and just put slight twists on them. So I am certainly guilty of uh, of of taking that uh, fairly easy approach to comedy myself. I will freely admit that. All right. So as we track our way through Bobby Bowfinger's home, uh, we get uh, to see some of the uh, the cast list of this movie. So let's uh, quickly go through, well, probably not that quickly, uh, but let's go through the names that we see because, uh, boy, this is such a phenomenal cast for this movie. We've, uh, we've already, uh, we, we missed out on seeing Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy uh, to, uh, to Giants, of course. Um, and now we're into uh, the supporting cast. And the first name that we see this minute is Heather Graham. Boy, do I love Heather Graham. I really, I find her, uh, I think she's a very good actress. I think she is a very charming screen personality. Obviously, of course, she's beautiful, uh, and uh, and I've always found her her very appealing in that way. But uh, but I think that she's given some really great performances, and boy, was she having a moment uh, this summer. She'd also been in the Austin Powers sequel uh, this summer, so she was uh, kind of the the Hollywood it girl at the moment. Um, after uh, sort of really breaking three or breaking through, pardon me, with uh, with Boogie Nights uh, back in 1997, she had been working in Hollywood for a long time. Ever since she was a teenager, she was in License to Drive. She was in Twin and so on, uh, and then did a lot of uh, independent movies throughout the 90s before uh, really just uh, uh, bursting into the big time with her, her, uh, her legendary role as, uh, as Roller Girl uh, in, uh, in Boogie Nights. <laughs> this is a bit of a name-dropping story, but I went to college with Justin Long, the actor, speaking of, of the movie Dodgeball. And I remember uh, that uh, when Boogie Nights was coming out, uh, he we were working on a play together, and he had brought in a um, a copy of like Premier Magazine or some magazine like that, where Heather Graham was had posed for a spread, and it's you know sexy pictures, not like Playboy or anything, but uh, but certainly a, a sexy and alluring photo spread. And uh, and he Justin was uh, was ooing and eyeing over Heather Graham, as we all were. We were all of course very into her, um, but. It really amuses me to remember that because, uh, you know, as Justin has gone on to a, a very impressive uh, film and TV career, uh, you know, he is uh, he's dated uh, fellow celebrities over the years. And he was with Drew Barrymore for a while. He was with Amanda Seyfried for a while. And now he's, he's dating Kate Bosworth. So. Uh, so, yeah, he, he has a type. <laughs> Justin does. Uh, uh, he's, uh, he, he does like his blondes. Now, as far as I know, Justin never did uh, date or, or go out with Heather Graham. Uh, but I did just learn while researching for this that for seven years, Heather Graham was in a relationship with somebody else I went to college with, a guy named Yaniv Raz. Uh, and so that kind of blew my mind. Um, and especially when you consider the fact that uh, also I went to college with a guy named John Togo, an actor who was on CSI Miami for years and was also married to Deora Baird. Uh, so apparently there is uh, something about uh, guys who, uh, who went to, uh, to Vassar College in the uh, in the late 1990s, uh, that uh, leads them to uh, to dating very attractive uh, blonde Hollywood actresses. So let's talk for a bit about Heather Graham's character in this movie, the character of Daisy, um, a character who is not unproblematic uh, in our modern perspective. Uh, there is an old, uh, fairly uh, uh, sexist joke in Hollywood about, oh, did you hear about the dumbest starlet in Hollywood? She's the one who slept with the writer, uh, which is supposed to be a joke about um, how powerless writers are in Hollywood, uh, but it winds up being a, a joke about um, uh, about women uh, um, having to uh, to sleep their way to the top. Um, and so this movie has uh, more than its fair share of what we would now call slut shaming, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, the character of Daisy, um, and uh, and that hasn't aged well, I don't think. Um, 
And uh, though I think that you could look at it these days as uh, with our perspective now might be more positive, like, hell yeah, Daisy. Sure. You know, you, you go, you're trying to have a career there. Go for it. Use, use your abilities, use your God given uh, uh, attractiveness to get ahead. Take advantage of these uh, these guys and uh, and uh, and get what uh, what you need. I don't think that's what the movie wants us to uh, to feel about her, uh, but maybe with uh, with twenty plus years of perspective, we uh, we might uh, start to feel that way. Now, um, a lot of people say that probably the character of Daisy is based partially on uh, Anne Hache, who, of course, we uh, we lost recently, and a very sad and, and tragic life story of uh, of poor Anne Hache. Uh, she dated Steve Martin for a few years before uh, this movie came out. And um, so a lot of people think that uh, uh, that Daisy is based on her. And uh, certainly uh, now by this time, she and Steve Barton had split up and Anne Hage was very publicly involved with Ellen DeGeneres. And so I think uh, you can probably uh, fill in the blanks as to why at the very end of the movie, we learn that Daisy is uh, now dating the most powerful lesbian in Hollywood. Um, I think perhaps uh, Steve Martin uh, getting a little bit of revenge there, airing some dirty laundry, um, perhaps not his finest hour. Steve, I love you, but uh, uh, maybe that was inappropriate. Um, so uh, next up on the list is, of course, uh, Christine Baranski. Boy, do I love Christine Baranski. I love her when she's going broad, when she's giving, uh, you know, big over-the-top performances uh, like she does in this movie. I love her when she's, you know, still has that same energy and drive, but it's maybe a little bit toned down for something like uh, something like uh, The Good Fight. Um, and uh, and I love her when she's sort of in the middle, like in Mamma Mia, uh, which is a mixed bag of a movie, but she's phenomenal every second she's on screen. Uh, so she is always welcome. Um, next name we see is Jamie Kennedy, uh, who plays Dave, uh, the cameraman who, um, who gets the um, uh, all of the equipment for uh, for the uh, the shoot of the movie. Uh, now Jamie Kennedy, um, I first became aware of in Scream, of course, um, you know, playing the uh, character of Randy, uh, who uh, for a guy like me, for a nerdy uh, adolescent, well, I was in college by then, so I was twenty-ish, uh, a nerdy uh, uh, guy who liked movies. He was definitely a sort of a point of view character um, who uh, uh, who we all identified with uh, in that and uh, and I was of course so bummed and crushed when he spoiler alert uh, dies in scream two uh, a little bit after this movie came out I, I, I met him briefly at a, a comedy club uh, and you know just exchanged a, a quick hello I, I did not uh, have the courage to uh, say how bummed I was when Randy died in scream two um, the, uh, then we get uh, two names on the list uh, uh, are popping up on the screen. The, uh, the first is Adam Alexi Molly. Um, he's a, an actor uh, who certainly has uh, a, a fairly long list of credits. He uh, does a lot of theater, too, as well as uh, a lot of uh, voice work in, in cartoons and video games. Um, he's, um, he's Italian, which you would not necessarily guess. Uh, his, uh, his father's Italian. His, uh, mother is, uh, uh, is part Palestinian. Um, so, uh, so he plays, of course, um, uh, Afrin, the, uh, the accountant who also, uh, writes the screenplay for, uh, for Chubby Rain. And then the next name, uh, after that is Cole Sudeth, who plays, uh, Slater, sort of the, uh, the handsome, uh, leading man with a very slacker kind of vibe. And that, uh, definitely, uh, tells you this movie is, uh, is from the 90s when you see him in his, uh, his plaid shirts and his soul patch and his uh, sort of a uh, uh, butt haircut that uh, so many of us attempted uh, back in the day. Um, he's uh, he's an actor who's got uh, a, a not terribly extensive uh, list of credits. Um, he appeared in a series of TV movies that Tom Selleck starred in in the uh, 
in the 2000s where he played a character named Jesse Stone, who was a, a, a character from novels written by Robert B. Parker. Cole Sudditz played a character named Officer Luther Suitcase Simpson. Uh, so uh, uh, in uh, possibly all nine, they made nine of these TV movies, uh, and uh, he, uh, he was in at least most of them, if, if not all of them. His final film credit was in 2015, so he's not uh, been working lately. Do not know what he is up to. Next name on the list is Barry Newman, uh, who plays the character of, uh, of Kit Ramsey's agent in this. Uh, he's a ca character actor who's been around for a long time by this point. He was an actor, studio guy, plenty of uh, film and, and TV roles. Um, and uh, apparently he grew up with Leonard Nimoy, so uh, I found that kind of interesting. Uh, he also has not had a film credit since 2015, but he's 84 years old now, so he might just be retired and, uh, and enjoying that. And uh, then we get to the with section, the uh, place where they put uh, uh, high-profile actors playing smaller parts. Uh, and the first name we see under with is uh, Robert Downey Jr., uh, also an actor I, uh, I'm so very fond of. Um, I do not know exactly where this movie falls in uh, the, uh, the long and checkered history of Robert Downey Jr. with his struggles with, uh, with addiction and, and recovery and, and treatment and so on. Um, he had, you know, uh, lots of uh, uh, setbacks and, and comebacks and so on. Uh, so, uh, so playing uh, playing this part, I'm not sure exactly where uh, he was in, in that uh, process for himself. It's about nine years before he made Iron Man, about nine years after he, uh, he played Charlie Chaplin in that movie for which he was nominated for uh, Best Actor Academy Award. Um, and uh, always uh, so good to see him. I, I love Robert Downey Jr. Uh, so much. Um, seeing him in this uh, reminds me of another show business satire uh, that he's in, uh, Soap Dish, which came out a few years before this. Um, I would probably, I think I like that movie a little bit better than I like Bowfinger, except, of course, for the very out-of-nowhere, really uh, kind of awful transphobic plot twist at the end of, of that movie uh, that so many movies of that era uh, indulged in, uh, but that one is, is pretty egregious, and up until that point, that movie is uh, uh, an utter delight, uh, so that is uh, a, a very disappointing that that has uh, sullied uh, what is otherwise uh, a very enjoyable film, uh, but he is great in that, and of course he's, he's great in this, and, uh, and oh, dear Lord, do I love him as, uh, as Tony Stark in, uh, in the MCU. Uh, I do not think that uh, the, uh, those movies would, uh, any of the Marvel movies would have, uh, have gotten nearly as far if he hadn't uh, uh, really just, you know, lifted up that first movie on his back and, uh, and, and showed us uh, how, uh, how it's done. And then the final name that we get is, uh, of course, Terrence Stamp, uh, who plays the, uh, the leader of uh, Mindhead, the, uh, the strange cult here. If you're my age, Terrence Stamp is and always will be General Zod in Superman 2, um, though he's been in so many great movies and he's, uh, he's such a, a great and, and powerful screen presence um, and, uh, and still working. I think his most recent credit was like uh, 2021, so I, I don't think he's, uh, he's officially retired yet. Um, uh, I hope not. Always happy to see him. Um, the question, of course, is, is Mindhead Scientology? I mean, yes, of course it's Scientology. Steve Martin has said that it's not just Scientology. And, of course, you know, he grew up um, in California, in uh, Southern California. And so he was there all throughout the 60s and 70s when there were a ton of cults and, uh, and weird uh, uh, organizations like that um, that, uh, uh, that a lot of people uh, were, uh, were happy to take part in. Scientology was only the biggest and most successful of them. Uh, so I will accept it that he says that, uh, that Mindhead is not entirely Scientology, but come on, Mindhead is Scientology. So now the camera has tracked its way through Bobby's house, and, uh, and here we see our main character, Bobby Bowfinger, 
reading the last few pages of the screenplay for Chubby Rain uh, by a, a solitary light. Um, and I do like that it starts with him uh, being enraptured by a script uh, as a writer. I like that, uh, and of course, you know, Steve Martin is a writer himself, but uh, speaking as, as a writer, I like that uh, this movie does uh, show that uh, that's where it has to start, right? It has to start with a screenplay. It has to start with uh, with uh, the work of a writer. Um, I suppose in many cases there's like, you know, a, a, a deal or a, a pitch meeting before we get to that, but, uh, uh, but you know, Clearly, it's a key early step, and I think Steve Martin does want to show that even for what is clearly a terrible screenplay in uh, in Chubby Rain, uh, Chubby Rain, the uh, the uh, the uh, the basis for what is going to be a terrible movie, um, it uh, it still is uh, is where everything begins. And here we have him. We have Steve Martin. Um, boy, I love Steve Martin. I I really do. I have uh, I've loved him. Uh, throughout uh, uh, my my life, I remember him, you know, on like the Muppet Show back in the uh, in the seventies. Uh, I remember people imitating the wild and crazy guys. Uh, I really just uh, um, I I have loved every step of his career. He's made so many uh, movies that uh, that I really appreciate. Um, this movie um, was his first screenwriting credit in about uh, maybe four or five years. The previous one. Uh, had been the movie uh, A Simple Twist of Fate, which was an adaptation of the novel Silas Marner that he wrote in the uh, early 90s. That movie was not a, a critical or financial hit. Um, so uh, before that, he'd made uh, his previous screenplay was L.A. Story, which is a great movie, sort of Steve Martin's attempt at doing a Woody Allen movie, basically a, a, you know, a Woody Allen movie about Los Angeles. Um, and I love that movie. Um, and, uh, so this is maybe something of a comeback for him as a, uh, as a screenwriter after a, a uh, after one setback. Um, he certainly had acted in other movies. He'd made like Sergeant Bilko. He'd made, uh, the remake of Out of Towners with, uh, with Goldie Hawn and so on. So, you know, sort of, you know, high profile sort of paycheck jobs. Um, he also had, uh, been spending a lot of time, um, working, um, outside of, of Hollywood. Uh, he'd, uh, written a lot of plays, including his big breakthrough play, uh, Picasso at the La Panagile. Uh, which is a great play. If you've, if you've ever read it, it is, is so much fun. The premise is that uh, it's uh, early in the 20th century and a young Pablo Picasso and a young Albert Einstein meet at a, a, in a cafe in Paris and talk about the, uh, the century ahead of them. Um, that's, uh, that movie is, 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 is probably that play is, uh, is very funny and uh, is very, very Steve Martin. Um, and uh, he's, he'd written that, he'd written some other plays, he'd been writing a lot of pieces for The New Yorker and so on. So um, he certainly had not been outside of Hollywood, but he had been at least, you know, uh, doing some work outside of Hollywood. Um, so interesting that uh, he sort of comes roaring back with this Hollywood satire. Um, uh, maybe uh, he'd got a little perspective uh, on things and, and wanted to, uh, to uh, take down uh, some of the things he didn't care for about uh, the movie business. Um, I find it intriguing that he cast himself as a director in this movie, since Steve Martin, you know, of course, he's an actor, he's been a producer, he's uh, he's been a uh, um, a screenwriter uh, many times. He's never directed a movie; um, he just never chose to. Unlike so many of his contemporaries, other people who started off in you know in comedy writing or, or, or stand up and then went on to. Uh, to be uh, to be directors, people like uh, Albert Brooks, Rob Reiner, Harold Ramis, Billy Crystal, uh, so many people who are his contemporaries uh, chose to go that route that he, uh, he has uh, he's never chosen. So interestingly, he would cast himself as a uh, uh, as a director here. So I could go on and on about how much I love Steve Martin. Um, I really admire him. Uh, I think he's so so smart. I think he's uh, so talented. 
and um, I think that he has made generally good choices. I mean, he's made some bad movies, no doubt about it. He's you know he's made some poor career choices too, but almost always he has made projects that were right for him at the time. That you know when in the nineteen seventies and and into the early eighties when he was in his twenties and thirties he could be uh, the the wild and crazy guy. He could be you know the the ridiculous uh, stage persona that he had. And by the way. I highly, highly recommend that you read, or even better, listen to the audiobook of Steve Martin's uh, autobiography, Born Standing Up, about his stand-up comedy years, uh, which is such a fascinating uh, picture of, of a time of, of his uh, his whole life, from like working in Disneyland as a kid to up to you know building up his comedy career and creating that character and becoming a, a huge superstar like no stand-up comedian had ever been before. And if you get the audiobook, you get to hear 60-year-old Steve Martin sort of reenacting the comedy routines of. 30-year-old Steve Martin, and that's really interesting to uh, to hear. But uh, So I highly recommend that book. So that was perfect for him to be at the time. And then he made the right choice that it was time for him to transition into uh, into different kinds of roles. So by the late 80s, you know, he's still occasionally playing broad characters in things like Little Shop of Horrors and so on, but he's also, you know, starting to play dads in movies like, uh, like Parenthood and Father of the Bride, and that was the right choice for him then. And then by the late 90s, he's starting to play roles like Bobby Bowfinger, and so on, sort of, you know, uh, older guys, you know, in, in that stage of life. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and now we have him in uh, Only Murders in the Building, uh, where he, he plays a character his own age, who does date women who are like 20 years younger than him. But, you know, Steve Martin is also married to a woman who was quite a bit younger than him and became a father in his 70s. So, you know, <laughs> it's not inaccurate. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think he's made such, uh, such good choices and has, you know, sustained his career so intelligently throughout. Um, and if you saw him and Martin Short uh, co-hosting SNL just before Christmas uh, this past year, they've still got it. They're still so funny. They're still so on the ball. Uh, they're not young men anymore. They're not you know dancing around like Ed Grimley, nor should they be. But they uh, they are. They know exactly how to use what they what they have to be as funny as they can possibly be. And it is uh, such a delight to see them uh, because so many comedians as they get older just you know lose it or try to be what they used to be. And, uh, and it just doesn't work anymore. So it, it's very nice to see uh, him uh, still thriving and doing so well. This episode is already quite long, considering it covers a minute where nothing really happens. But I do have to uh, uh, tell one Steve Martin story. I've never met Steve Martin. I, I've never had that opportunity. But a friend of mine did, and it is a great story. This is a friend of mine. He was living in Texas when Steve Martin was down there shooting um, the movie Leap of Faith. Um, my friend might even have been working on the movie. He's a theatrical carpenter, so maybe he was building sets. But whatever the reason was, he found himself, um, you know, on the uh, on the location where they were shooting, in front of Steve Martin's trailer. Now, my friend is a huge Steve Martin fan, as are all good people, and he uh, he stood there in front of Steve Martin's trailer and just you know was in awe that this was you know a place that had housed Steve Martin at one time. So he just couldn't help himself. He dropped to his knees right in front of the door to the trailer, threw out his arms in pure worship of his his comedy idol. And of course, because sometimes the universe works like this, at that exact moment, the door opens and there is Steve Martin standing there. So my friend is now face to crotch with Steve Martin. And uh, to Steve Martin's absolute credit, he sees my friend there, he looks down at him, sees my friend on his knees, and he says, oh good, they sent a new one. My friend has told me that story 
God, I hope that story is true because it is a glorious and beautiful story. I sincerely hope that that story is 100% true. And that really did happen because uh, uh, that tells me that uh, Steve Barton is uh, everything you would want him to be. Now, finally, I have to get this in. Uh, I don't get to see his credit in this minute that I'm covering, but Frank Oz is the director of this movie. And Frank Oz has been a part of my life since childhood. Um, I, I love him so much. Um, I like so many movies that he has directed. Maybe he's never directed a full-on masterpiece, except maybe Little Shop of Horrors. I might call that a masterpiece. Uh, but directed so many really solid comedies, movies like uh, uh, like this, like uh, like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and, and so on, like The Muppets Take Manhattan. And uh, but of course, that's how I know Frank Oz. That's how I love and cherish Frank Oz as 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 a Muppet performer, as Fozzie Bear, as Miss Piggy, as Grover, as Cookie Monster, as Animal, uh, as Bert. Uh, as uh, as Yoda, of course. Uh, I really, I just grew up uh, loving him, loving what he uh, he brought to those characters, and uh, and really uh, uh, such a, a formative and key person in my childhood. If you have access to Spotify or uh, any other streaming service that lets you listen to old Sesame Street albums, I really recommend that you find some of those old ones. Back in the seventies, they would put out a couple albums a year, um, and some of the songs where it's Frank Oz uh, and Jim Henson performing together, whether they're playing Bert and Ernie together or Rover and Kermit or just like, you know, two people on the street in, uh, you know, uh, who are the people in your neighborhood. When they get to just sort of riff together and they're in a studio, they may be more relaxed. They not, don't have to worry about operating the puppets. So it's just the two of them just using their voices. Uh, they're so funny together. They have such a nice dynamic and chemistry. It's so clear that they love the rhythms of that sort of old-fashioned, maybe vaudevillian style of comedy, and that they just loved each other. That uh, it was just, it's just seeing two two collaborators and two friends working together like that, uh, or listening to it, uh, is uh, is such a joy. And I, I highly recommend you check that out, folks. That is all I have to say about minute three of the movie Bowfinger. So thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, you should know that you can find the Bowfinger Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play or over at our main site, bowfingerminute.com. And if you have the time, please like and subscribe, maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You know that's very helpful to help a, a podcast audience grow. Um, so uh, social media for Bowfinger Minute is available over at uh, Welcome to Mindhead, the Bowfinger Minute Listener Center on Facebook, uh, and over on Twitter at uh, Bowfinger Minute. If you had any interest in learning more about me and the uh, the stuff I do, you can check me out. I'm Dino Carroll on Twitter. I'm Dino Carroll Plays on Instagram, and uh, over there you can find links to my publishers for my published plays. Because uh, if you know somebody who uh, who works in theater for high schools or middle schools or community theaters or summer camps, they might be interested in uh, the types of things that I write. I have had a blast recording this episode. I certainly hope that you will be back. Uh, next time for the very next episode of Bowfinger Minute. And in the meantime, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. Keep it together, children. I hope that we'll see you again. Cause there's always One more show Cause there's always One more show One more
sure.